Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Well, hello. I am Chris Steyerwald. I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, we are recording this the day after Valentine's Day. Did you have a nice Valentine's Day? I had a wonderful Valentine's Day, actually, which was never, my dad was always like, it's a Hallmark holiday. We never did anything for it growing up. And I always told my husband, I was like, I hate flowers. They're just work. You know, you got to cut the stems and put them in the vase and not a chocolates person. And finally, he just said, I'm doing whatever I want. Yeah. And gets me, started getting me flowers and chocolate. That's right. Every year. But we went out to a nice dinner the day before. Oh, good. Which was super nice because it wasn't crowded or anything. So we had, like, such a lovely time. Oh, that's so good. And I came I love... home and there were flowers and chocolate on the front table, and it was really nice. Oh, I love to hear it. Yeah, it I was love really nice. It. And we went to Nobu. Oh, how was it? It was great. Oh, good. And sat at the bar, you and know, had, like, very had casual. Sushi. Had sushi, had a couple drinks. It was really nice. Oh, that's so good. What about you? At home, they, I, th- I think Valentine's Day is best understood as uh, a children's or family holiday celebrating the notion of romantic love. And we had a lovely time. And, of course, let me highly recommend my Valentine's tradition of Bissinger's chocolate. Have you ever had Bissinger's chocolate? No. So Bissinger's is, I learned about it as a kid in St. Louis. It's a St. Louis operation, and Bissinger's is the bomb, is truly, truly good. It's appallingly expensive, but truly excellent. And my youngest man child is nuts for their, they have marshmallow bonbons. Oh, that's good. That are just to die for. And their bear claws are excellent. I highly recommend the good, the good people of Bissinger's. Chris, Mm. that brings us right to the front page. The sweet candy of the front Where there is page. no love to be had between President Joe Biden and special counsel Robert Hur. Dun, dun, dun. But there is lots of love to be had between the Republican-controlled Congress and Robert Hur. They are making plans for him to testify in front of a GOP uh, panel. And this is in the wake of Hur's report right. where he laid out, I think, plenty of cause to prosecute Joe Biden, where he said the retention of, cl- of classified documents was intentional, but in effect said a jury would not convict Biden. Not, wor- not worth trying for the conviction. Because they would see him as ha- as being a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. A, symp- a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Yes. Wow. And the when, when this story first dropped which is right after we recorded last week, I knew right away, and Nate and I had been working on the note for the dispatch, and it worked out perfectly because we we had put together, we had pulled string together on a note that was about, wow, Republicans are really in the soup. They have really 
fallen apart. They had their calamity on the border bill. They had, all, you know, all of this stuff. And Trump is running amok and all these things. And then it all snapped right back into focus of Joe Biden's age and infirmity in that moment. And the media coverage of it was really interesting because Biden wanted to dispel this report. So rushed to have a White House press conference and they shoved a bunch of reporters into, I think, the East Room. They didn't have to shove anyone. A bunch of reporters crammed right. themselves into the East Room to hear Biden denounce Her's report and to dispel the notion that he didn't have all his faculties. And he proceeded. You know, what was so interesting to me was the press conference was no different than any other Biden press conference except, where he confused names. And yeah. except that reporters were primed to pay attention and press him about all this stuff. And he proceeded to confuse the names of Egypt the president of Egypt and Mexico. And the narrative going into it was different. And, you know, the what Joe Biden imagines he's going to do again and again is, ah, they say that I am doddering. They say that I don't have all my faculties and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to blow them away. They're going to see me and I'm going to I'm going to dispel these rumors. But, of course, just reinforces them. And one of the most excruciating political moments in recent memory was Biden also wanted to denounce the Israeli attacks on Hamas and the humanitarian, the associated humanitarian toll. And he, there's a thing, and you've, you've been there for it. You've probably even shouted a, a question after someone doing it, which is the, oh, wait, I'm going to go back to the podium. I'm going to, oh, the president is walking away. Nope. He's going to take that question. He's going to go back to the podium. Bill Clinton that was a patented move for Bill Clinton, like, oh, it's just this spontaneous, you know what, one more thing, you jackals. And the, the visual of Biden, who had been moving so slowly and haltingly, and he has that sort of plantar fasciitis that, old, that older folks get. With, the shuffle. Yeah, where it's hard to pick your, pick your feet up. And the excruciating period as the questions are being shouted, and he has reached the door and then turns back to come to the microphones was just excruciating. It was just brutal. And the narrative quickly switches from Democrats and sympathetic members of the press to what's wrong with Robert Hur? What is the matter with Robert Hur? Why would he do this? Why would he say these things? And now, of course, that Hur, as of this recording, is in talks with House Republicans to testify it's the Robert Hur as public enemy number one. The, that narrative is going to really ramp up. There's there's a particular here in that what Biden really took issue with was hers contention in the report that Biden could not remember within a range of several years when his son Bo died. And Biden, there was a report indicating that Biden said you know, with an expletive, went on an expletive laden yeah. rant to Democrats about it. And then he said the same thing in the press conference, which led. Um, I thought to Wall myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Yeah. Which led the Wall Street Journal to editorialize that if Biden contends this in public and her says this in his report, why don't why don't they release the transcript? Let's see the transcript of the interview 
But another way of doing this is to get her under oath yeah. testifying to the Republican Congress. And so I think that will be an interesting testimony. And reporters are interested in this. So the Wall Street Journal wrote, let's see the Biden her transcript. Mr. Hur's team spent five hours with the president, and his assessment is shifting the public debate on the wisdom of giving an 81-year-old the nuclear launch codes for another five, four years. Beltway media types are insisting that the nomination die is already cast and the Democratic future is Biden or bust. Jonathan Martin, Politico's hall monitor for conventional wisdom, is leading this Biden protection campaign, but that isn't inevitable. Now, it is because I don't think Biden will actually step aside. However, the media has picked up on this tidbit about Bo Biden and NBC yes. News reports, Biden attacked her for asking him when Bo died. That didn't happen, sources say. And in this excellent report, Ken Delanian, Delanian at NBC News mm -hmm. writes, President Joe Biden last shouted at Robert Hur last week over one particular line in the special counsel's report on his handling of classified documents that Biden, quote, did not remember even within several years when his son Bo died. How in the hell dare he raise that, Biden told reporters in an impromptu White House press conference. Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself it wasn't any of their damn business. But her never asked that question, according to two people familiar with her's five-hour interview with the president over two days last October. It was the president, not her or his team, who first introduced Bo Biden's death, they said. Biden raised his son's death after being asked about his workflow at a Virginia rental home from 2016 to 2018, the sources said when a ghostwriter was helping him write a memoir about losing Bo to brain cancer in 2015. Investigators had a 2017 recording showing that Biden had told the ghostwriter he had found, quote, classified stuff in that home, the report says. Biden began trying to recall that period by discussing what else was happening in his life, and it was at that point in the interview that he appeared confused about when Bo died, the sources said. Biden got the date, May 30th, correct, but not the year. President Biden has publicly struggled with the time frame of his son's death. And it's not to say that he in no way mitigates his grief or how se obviously searing this experience would be to uh, a, a promising young man, relatively, you know, in, the, in his prime, Bo Biden, who was, it was a person that you looked at and you thought, well, if, if we were going to make a list of the thousand people in America most likely to be president. Let's just say he probably would have rather lost Hunter. Oh. <laughs> oh, if he had, if he oh. was forced to choose. Oh, well, I'm sure he loved, I'm sure he loves his sons both. But the searing loss of his son that Joe Biden has said that he, his son died in Iraq or died, has conflated his son's service in Iraq with his death. It's something that he struggled with. And the White House seized on this as the this is how partisan, this is how political Robert Hur was, that he was even torturing the president by asking him about his son's death and good on NBC for saying, and you knew that that's not what happened. I, I knew that that was not had, what had happened, that somehow Robert Hur and of course his team not. He had didn't been go in for a memory doing test. a quiz on, okay, what, on what day did, you know, when did the War of 1812 start? It was not that, and that Biden just gets confused a lot and he gets mixed up a lot. I get mixed up a decent amount. I am not quite half Joe Biden. I'm a little more than half Joe Biden's age, and I get confused quite a lot, and I, I understand. But the effort to villainize her and make her into this person, I don't know the, the 
legal wisdom around including the rationale for why you're not prosecuting? I assume it was Keister covering and that her wanted to make the rationale sort of like the the shades of James Comey 2016 with Hillary Clinton here are are real and that her was rationalizing why he what he needed he wanted to make the strongest argument he could for why he wasn't recommending criminal charges and in doing so threw a real tough elbow against Joe Biden but of course what's the real problem here for the president and his reelection and democrats is her said in 10 words exactly what most americans are thinking right most americans aren't don't agree with uh, donald trump that joe biden is a radical left blah 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 kindly well-intentioned, sympathetic, old man, elderly man who is not up, up to scratch. And that's why it was so damning. John Stewart did have a funny line about this where he said in his first, you know, his first mm-hmm, show back mm-hmm. that the White House is always describing him as energetic. and Can't keep up with big, him. Yeah. And he said, like, why can't they get that guy on camera? Yeah. He's way too can't fast. They get that? Yeah. Why can't they get that <clears throat> guy to a press conference? He's elusive. Conference? He's always running away from them and they're trying to catch up with him. I... I thought that typical of this conversation, a column by Pamela Paul in the New York Times, Biden must win, but how, question mark. And I thought, interesting, let's talk about it. And she begins, like many Democrats, I'm stuck on a doomsday merry-go-round. Joe Biden shouldn't be running for president. Joe Biden is running for president. Donald Trump shouldn't be running for president. Donald Trump is running for president. But this isn't 2020. Biden cannot run the same campaign he did last time. When all he had to do was appear normal back then, he still had some of the Obama sheen. Today, he and his vice president are both unpopular. Little in his first term seems to be serving him well. Though he's done a good job as president and the economy is thriving, few give him credit and multiple polls show him running behind Donald Trump. I'm like, okay, this seems like a cogent, fairly cogent analysis. But wait. The answer, we are told, is that, quote, instead he should take a page from what's worked for Republicans, going for the gut rather than the mind. Or as Rachel Beitkoffer, a political strategist and co-author of the new book, Hit Him Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, put it when I spoke to her last week, instead of Michelle Obama's, when they go low, we go high, the Biden campaign should think, when they go low, we hit them where it hurts. Now, I've heard bad political advice and bad analysis many, many times, many times. It is more common than good political analysis. But this idea... And I, not to pick on this particular column or this author or Rachel Beitkoffer or whatever. Here's what people wrongly believe. It's the communications. It's the message, right? If we could just change, instead of saying this, and, and they go through and talk about Biden shouldn't say finish the job, he should say this, and he shouldn't say that, shouldn't say the other thing. What's Joe Biden's problem? He's too old. He's too old to be running for president. And... Everybody knows it. Democrats know it. Certainly Republicans know it. Persuadables know it. He's too old. And he is not nimble or agile enough to do this job. And every the, the broad conclusion, the idea that there is a messaging fix for this is preposterous. And I, I just can't imagine that the solution for Biden is a gutter campaign against Donald Trump. I cannot fathom. And here, her argument that being normal was good enough. If Joe Biden could be normal, it would be more than good enough. If Joe Biden could get to normal, if he could get to, eh, he's a conventional politician, 
he would be crushing Donald Trump. He would be it would be a, a runaway victory. But Joe Biden normal would be good enough. But Joe Biden can't summon normal because he can't the the idea of Joe Biden. What do we got? Seven months to the election. I lose track of time. Uh, we'll call it eight. We'll call it eight. Eight months to the election that, that Joe Biden somehow is going to drag himself through the next eight months and not have more and more of these moments. I you remember when he fell on stage uh, last the sandbag? year? Yeah. Yeah. And who could forget? I wrote at the time, I said, every moment that Joe Biden is in public, every moment that he is doing something to try to restore his image, he's taking the risk of another one of these. And the her report was a steroidal version of that. And it's and I disagree that the die is cast. And I don't know what the probability of Joe Biden not being the Democratic nominee, but it's better than one in 10. Right. I think the chances of. of I was going to say, I think it's 10 percent. I, th I think it's probably some I'll call it 15. OK, because the it, it's. He, he cannot do it. It's just it's it's become too clear. And and then I will shut up, I promise, after I say this. The despair among Democrats and the lack of pride that Democrats feel in their candidate, some of it is ideological, but most of it is he just is too old. They don't feel comfortable and confident touting who this person is. When you look at Donald Trump's support among Republicans, it's astonishingly low. Right. For a guy who's already been president, it's astonishing low. Then you flip the page and you look at Democrats and it's even lower. And there's no there's no messaging. There's no attack on Republicans that's going to to fix all of that. Chris. While the media is attuned now to this, mm -hmm. there's also a separate strain of reporting coming out that I thought was embodied by this New York Times piece. Memory loss requires careful diagnosis, careful. scientists be say. And Don't rush into it. it. The Times write, forgetting an event doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem, said Dr. John Morris, a neurology professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Mr. Hur, the special counsel, based his conclusions on a five-hour interview conducted over two days, the two days following Hamas's surprise assault on Israel, and a, recent, and a review of interviews with a ghostwriter recorded in, tw in 2017. But to scientifically identify a memory problem <laughs> requires the doctors assess the change in a person's cognitive function oh, over time man. and ascertain that its magnitude is sufficient to reduce the patient's ability to perform usual Robert activities, Hurd, Dr. Doctor. Morris said. The best way to determine if such a change has occurred is to compare results from a memory test today uh -huh. and the results from a test taken five or ten years ago. So, you know, we're going to have to have Robert Hurd come back in a decade. Yeah. Come back see, and compare. Yeah. What was it when Biden is 91 to compare? Oh, you know, I guess there was some memory loss. Failing that, doctors may interview someone who knows the patient well, usually a close family member, to get a sense of whether there's been a decline. So we're going to need her to sit with Jill Biden. And say, Dr. Jill. Dr. Jill. And get her to open up about this. Well, But what struck me about this is how many op-eds and articles did the Times publish diagnosing Donald Trump with narcissism and this and that and what what mental disorder does he have and we didn't see a whole lot of you know narcissism requires careful medical diagnosis like let's be careful here with the diagnoses of donald trump we, we didn't get a lot of that no i commend to folks a very good andrew sullivan column oh and i one thing yeah, i yeah. wanted to add before we get to that is 
nobody was saying that her diagnosed him with some kind of disease. They said he evinced that he had a poor memory, that he couldn't recall events. He did not offer a medical diagnosis in there. So it was really a, they built up a straw man to knock down. Andrew Sullivan's piece, succinct, effective argument on this, and he calls it Ruth Bader Ginsburg syndrome. And certainly Republicans have a problem with people refusing to leave, but he makes the a, a, a cogent, tight argument about how for Democrats, whether it's Hillary Clinton, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Joe Biden, the inability to, and what's funny is a party that is younger demographically than the Republicans has this problem about not being able to get people off the stage. And it's a good, a good read. And honestly, the Republicans have the same problem. They have particularly with one one dude. A couple of dudes. Yeah. But the Republicans have the same age problems with, with Trump and with Mitch McConnell. It's just not quite as pronounced as with That's Biden. Right. And and they're not the president of the United States, That's which right. which helps. Chris, let's talk about the news business, which okay. I mean the cuts just keep on coming. And I'm gonna get to this in my obsession, but Paramount, which owns CBS News slashed 800 jobs, including some high-profile journalists at CBS. And the New York Post reports Catherine Herridge, an award-winning senior correspondent whose First Amendment case is being closely watched by journalists nationwide, and that's a First Amendment case that is in connection to her work as a correspondent at Fox News, was among the hundreds of employees at CBS parent Paramount who got pink slips on Tuesday, sources told The Post. The carnage provoked outrage from the rank and file at CBS, with some focusing their ire on Paramount Global CEO Bob Backish, who pulled down $32 million in total compensation last year, despite the company's ever-shrinking financial profile. Among the other Washington casualties, sources said, was CBS News correspondent Jeff Peggs. Do you know how to pronounce his name? I'll go with Peggs. Okay. Who was subjected to HR probes over his workplace behavior. When the incident was Ooh. investigated... Yeah, I'm not familiar with the inside here. The HR probe was related to an alleged incident in, he, in which he dressed down a female co- colleague in a 20-minute rant. Oh, you can only dress down male colleagues yeah, for I don't 20 know. minutes. That doesn't sound so awful, but... So, CBS... Anyhow, CBS, crunch. lots of firings. And this just came across the transom this morning. It's not even in our in our little lineup here, but I will read it, which is... Oops that The Intercept is also cutting 15 people. Oh. And they sent out a note to their employees saying, like many news outlets, The Intercept is facing significant financial challenges. To become sustainable, we need to make some changes, which unfortunately include 15 staff reductions across the organization. Times are bleak. RIP The Intercept. But there to walk us through it is the great Christine Rosen, a friend of the pod who wrote, a very helpful piece in Commentary Magazine, Don't Blame Us, We're Journalists. And Christine goes through and looks at these problems. The only prediction that seems both likely an improvement on the current state of mainstream journalism is communications professor Alvaro Luzzi's claim that the future might involve a high degree of automation to achieve a more authentically human journalism. Even traditionalists might find that a future in which the algorithm will be the message proves more reliable and less partisan than what is currently on offer for many of our mainstream's best and brightest. 
for its 2024 preview, Columbia Journalism Review, consulted the oracle that is Taylor Lorenz, the Washington Post technology reporter best known for direct messaging the troubled teenage children of Trump advisors to glean information about their social media habits and political leanings. Lorenz's advice, more of the same. Quote, the more we engage our audience directly and the more that we encourage people from our news organizations to have a two-way relationship with our audiences, the better for everyone. It helps with trust, she claims. By the way, Lorenz's posts on X are protected, so no one can engage with her without prior consent. Oscar Wilde once observed that the difference between literature and journalism is that journalism is unreadable and literature is not read. In 2024, journalism appears well on its way to joining literature in its status as unread. The difference is that, unlike literature, the best of which still has something to teach us, journalism's ignominy will have been well-earned. Pow! Bang! Touche. Touche. Should we get to Israel Hamas? Do it. And the Christine Rosen column was fantastic. Highly recommend that. This jumped out at me from recording on Thursday, and this was published in the journal two days ago. The headline is, Rafa is already in a humanitarian crisis. Now an Israeli offensive looms. And the reporter writes, Rafa on Gaza's southern edge is now a city of tents and the epicenter of one of the worst humanitarian disasters in years. Yet a deadly mix of war, politics, and logistics is choking off emergency aid, and the scale of suffering has raised international pressure, pressure on Israel ahead of an anticipated offensive. More than 1.3 civilians, which amounts to over half of the Gaza Strip's population, have fled in the Palestinian enclave and crowded into Rafah, normally home to about 300,000 residents. And it goes on and on and on about this. What the piece does not mention, there is literally not a mention in this piece, is that Israel, the IDF, did this daring hostage rescue in Rafa and pulled two of its hostages out of a house in which they were being held. And so whose fault would it be? It talks about the pressure on Israel not to mount this campaign when it just rescued two of these civilian hostages that are being held in here. And it does not mention that in this piece, that Israel must rescue, must try to get back the 150 remaining hostages. It just demonstrated that they are being held in this enclave. And the entire thing is about the civilian suffering, which is valid, but who's to blame for that? And there is nothing in here about Hamas nestling the Israeli hostages and the civilian popula population nestling the hostages intentionally in there in order to generate news coverage such as this. Yeah, the the default on coverage now is humanitarian. It's the 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 efforts to keep an emphasis on the hostages by the Israelis and by their supporters in the United States has given away given way to humanitarian coverage and I I I don't I don't know how this ends. I don't know how it ends and I it's this has become I think it's ended up where a lot of us expected it would end. The coverage has ended up where a lot of us expected it to end up and in reductive and tropish. This also was amazing. Oh, well, Nate Moore, eagle-eyed Nate Moore provides us with this true gem 
this true beauty of the Ivy League collegiate press. This started, and the journal wrote an article, and I thought to myself, this is so unworthy of, of journal coverage that several, the journal wrote this several, several Brown University students went on a quote-unquote hunger strike oh, Brown. to protest the university's investments in Israeli companies, essentially, and and that was covered in the journal. Okay, and well, just, the you Harvard just Crimson yeah. weighs in to note more than thirty Harvard students hunger strike. Wait for it for twelve hours. Twelve hours. Breakfast in was solidarity skipped. with Brown protesters. Nineteen students at Brown began the strike, which was originally indefinite. On February, they were going to die. On February 2nd, ahead of the Brown Corporation's plans me- planned meetings beginning February 8th, the students intended to strike until the Brown Corporation considered a, res- a resolution to divest from, quote, companies which profit from human rights abuses in Palestine. But they intended the st- but they ended the strike after Brown University President Christina H. Paxson denied their request, citing, quote, now obsolete demands for the Brown Herald. So they ended it when they uh, got a middle finger. Mm-hmm. From the Brown president, and yes, the, the Andrew Styles at the Free Beacon covered this and and crossed out hunger strike for skipped lunch. Skipped lunch, that's um, right. In, Bre- breakfast not enjoyed. I'm trying to get to so they the Crimson says the so the Crimson says the 17 students ended their strike at 5 p.m. on February 9th, along with Harvard demonstrators and more than 200. Brown students who fasted for 32 hours. So who are so the, I guess the 12 hour people got in halfway, more than halfway the 12, into. The, yeah, the the Harvard students joined in solidarity with with the Brown students, and they just did it for a half day. This is just congratulations, Harvard Crimson, for lifting up the oppressed with the with this great coverage. That's just amazing. What was our great the the no the. It has not yet supplanted, though, the greatest ever wretched example of collegiate journalism, which was about, about daylight savings seasonal time. effect, the, the, the consequences of seasonal affective disorder on the Yale undergraduate population. You're close, Harvard Crimson. You, you, you got there into the neighborhood with a 12 hour hunger strike, uh, but no one has has yet to un, un, un dethrone the 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 brutal oppression and probably, I assume, patriarchal white supremacy of seasonal affective disorder. Chris, that brings us to Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin. And we must say, you predicted he would ask about Evan Griskovich. I said he would not. He did, right? But he did. Well, you know, to get there, you, you had to wait a long time. You had to wait a long time to get there. And Carlson, I said last week that I wouldn't want to interview Vladimir Putin. Because if you do your job right, you get murdered because Vladimir Putin murders people. He is an enthusiastic murderer of people, loves to do it, telegraphs his power and message. So you're sitting across from this guy and you're in his country and he had and you're going to like hold you're going to hold his feet to the fire and then say, I hope I make it to the airport. And then you spend the rest of your life wondering is today the day that I get poisoned? Is today the day that my family gets murdered? I don't. I think it's good that people want to interview Vladimir Putin in the same way it'd be good if people wanted to interview Stalin or Hitler or whatever. Like, that's fine. If, if, you, if you've if you got the cojones to do it, you want to do it, that's great. 
But I don't think there is a lot to learn from Vladimir Putin. I don't think, you know, the the idea that in this interview, you're going to learn something from a person who has already demonstrated with their actions who they are. You're going to, what's he going to say? Oh, you got me. Oh, you got me. All of the powers of the world have been trying for a decade to constrain my czarist ambitions. But you, Christiana Amanpour or whomever, you have got me here and I, I just, I give. But. Tucker did get to see Moscow. Well, it's it's apparently very lovely. It's apparently very lovely there. And he said... And I believe he's doing this in the United Arab Emirates. Okay, yeah, let's play the clip. Okay, and what we found shocked us. Now, that's not an endorsement of Stalin. It was bad, obviously, nor is it an endorsement of the current president, Vladimir Putin. You may not like him either. But it doesn't change the reality of what we saw or more precisely didn't see. There's no graffiti, there's no filth, there's no foul smells. There are no bums or drug addicts or rapists or people waiting to push you onto the train tracks and kill you. No, it's perfectly clean and orderly. And how do you explain that? We're not even going to guess. That's not our job. We're only gonna ask the question. And if your response is to shout at us slogans dumber than the slogans we used to call Soviet, and mock, that's not really an answer. How does Russia, a country we're told is a gas station with nuclear weapons, have a subway station that normal people use to get to work and home every single day that's nicer than anything in our country? How do they do it, Eliana? It's not, it's not Tucker's job to find out why, but his job only to ask the question because apparently there's no way to determine how Russia keeps order. How do they have it so orderly? We don't know. Is it the gulag? Is it the secret police? Is it murder squads? Who knows? We, we, we can't ask questions. We just know that America is the worst. And as he said at this event later after he left Russia, that Moscow is so much cleaner and prettier aesthetically, its architecture, its food, its service, than any city in the United States. Wow, wow, wow. Truly amazing. It does underline the point that there is there is a real connection between the it's more than nascent but the growing isolationism on the right and a real contempt for america yep and a love of authority a love of power do you know there are many reasons why it's gross to go on the new york subway there's many reasons why Washington's Union Station is an unpleasant place to go. One of them, though, is that Americans have rights and that we are difficult and that freedom and liberty are difficult. Kevin Williamson, the great Kevin Williamson, congratulations to the Williamsons, by the way, on their triplet children. Whoa. Yep, yep, healthy and three boys and so so pleased. Yes, so pleased that the Williamsons are working on their basketball team and so good. But Kevin laid the wood to what Carlson was doing in a piece called The Full Durante at the Dispatch. The irony of the Putinism and near Putinism we see on the contemporary right, one of the ironies anyway, is that Moscow represents precisely what they believe, wrongly for the most part, Washington to be, an imperial city in which a coddled, politically connected, decadent urban elite enrich themselves through official influence and off-the-books relationships 
while scouring the countryside for young men to recruit into their vicious wars of imperialism and conquest. Of course, the, and he goes on from there and talks about, talks about more, but Kevin helpfully provides a chronicle of how many Russians use outhouses. The percentage, I think it's something like one in five Russians do not have indoor plumbing in their homes. And a conceit of the American right for a long time. Walter Durante, the the infamous New York Times Russian correspondent who Pulitzer co- Prize winning who covered up the terror famine and the and the terror the purges of Joseph Stalin, and in in service of well you got to break a few eggs to make a glorious revolution for the pe- workers, and the conceit on the right for a long time was that this is a problem of the left. It's not a problem of the left. It's a problem of human nature. And the, the impulse in tribal politics is to, to ascribe certain faults to people on the other side, that one side or the other is more likely to be drawn into authoritarianism or that one side or the other is more likely to worship power or that one side or the other is more likely to do this or that. As Kevin points out, and as all of this makes clear, these are human problems. These are not problems of an ideology. These are not problems of uh, a way of thinking. This is what humanity, the affliction of the crooked timber of humanity, the, the nature of human beings, is to love these things. And this is why it is so hard and so essential to have a code and to have standards, whether it be your constitution as a nation or your ethics and standards as a journalist that you can cling to to try to steer clear of these traps because it's not a left thing or a right thing. It's a human thing. Chris, that brings us to our, well, perfectly into our facile file. Quite so. You flagged this New York Times piece. Oh, baby. Just. Your, your quote, solo poly. So you're single. Solo poly. What's a solo poly, Eliana? No idea. Well. Absolutely no idea. In this piece by Gina Cheribus, Cheribus the, in, the, in her third wheel column, talks about the plight of Americans who describe themselves as solo poly. Now, you know what a solo poly person is? They're polyamorous, which means that they enjoy Congress with multiple partners, but in an honest, transparent way. But they don't have one main partner that they're doing this with. They're just doing this with lots of people. And here's the, here's the description. Hiomi Morgan, 36, a certified sexologist. Whoa, certified. Don't go to one of those uncertified sexologists. You want to get a certified sexologist in Atlanta. Was living the sol- solo poly lifestyle long before she discovered the term in 2016. 14 years ago, she said, I did not have this language, she said in a phone interview. It was not in my awareness at all. It does feel fairly new. I just know that having an open lifestyle was a thing, she continued. And I decided instead of being monogamous, that I would be non-monogamous and I would be transparent about that with the people in my life. And there are the author shares the plight of others who have struggled to get other people to understand that they're living a, a particular solo poly lifestyle. I like this a lot better 
when it was the swing in 70s and people had waterbeds and were doing drugs and having sex with multiple people and not caring about the consequences. That at least had cool shag carpeting and vans with heart-shaped tinted windows in the back. The soundtrack was better and it was a lot groovier when they were doing it than when it had to be. When Can you imagine anything less sexy than being a sexologist, that the, the effort to scientize the romantic relationships with, with people. This was a truly, and I kept waiting for the gag, right? I, as I was reading this piece, I kept waiting for the author to be like, but obviously you're just sleeping around. Who cares? But no, 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 no laugh line was coming. No, no rim shot was coming. I love the caption on the photo of a girl sitting by herself at a bar drinking a uh, Cosmo. It's like dating, but slightly different. But slightly yeah. different. <laughs> but sleeping around, but there's a name for it, so it's okay. As long as you're telling everyone that you're sleeping around, it's okay. Amazing. 10 out of 10, yes, New York Times, solo poly. Now, we have, speaking of tropes, one of the tropes that we have on this podcast is the took to Twitter. They took to Twitter. They took to social media. Who? Which one of our guests gave us that phrase? don't remember. Oh, come on. The profile writer. Oh, Sean McCreesh. Of course. The great Sean McCreesh gave, gave us that took to Twitter, took to whatever, to talk about lazy reporting and lazy journalism. And I want to give Newsweek a full McCreesh. I want to give him the absolute, give them the absolute McCreesh award for the following piece. Christian Super Bowl commercial outrages conservatives. Whoa. That seems like a lot. Must have been there there must be a lot of people very upset. The writer Andrew Stanton must really deliver the goods on this. Now, did you watch the Super Bowl? Yes. Did you see this ad? I don't think so. I was watching a golf in in the biggest dad move of all time. The golf tournament I was watching went into a playoff and I did not join the I did not join the Super Bowl telecast until just before halftime. So I think I missed it, but I, I watched and missed it in the broadcast, but subsequently watched it. In the Christian tradition, there is a powerful story about Jesus washing the feet of those who serve him, the servant leader who humbles himself in service of other people. In the Roman Catholic Church, there's a ritual where the Pope does this. It is a reminder, right, about what people in leadership positions in the in the church should be doing. And the organization, he gets us paid for this ad, I'm sure spent millions of dollars to pay for this ad, to send the message that real Christianity is, and it's people of different people of different colors and different backgrounds, and you see different sets of feet that that a true Christian loves these people and serves them. So pretty much a, a main, I would say a mainstream Christian message. I'm down. But then apparently people were upset. How do we know people are upset, Eliana? Did you, they take to Twitter? Oh, did they? Did they? And so Newsweek, to get this slimy headline, to get this just clickbait trash headline, Christian Super Bowl commercial outrageous conservatives, found a bunch of people posting online their complaints about it including their, they found the guy from the Babylon Bee who had obviously terrible take 
the commercial that said the commercial was strictly following oppressed versus oppressor intersectionality guidelines and trying either to sell Jesus to leftists or cynically use Jesus to sell a political movement. Yeah, you wouldn't want people selling Jesus to leftists. You should you should definitely hold on to Jesus for the right wing and not try to carry this radical message of salvation and grace to people you disagree with politically. Good good call. Some no-name pastor, blah, 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 blah. And went through and found, I mean, the Babylon Bee's point is to troll people on social media. That's their that's the brand. So they find these trolls and they write this author writes and Newsweek publishes this lengthy piece based on social media crapola to make this point, which is an untrue point. I doubt, well, it is narrowly true to say that a handful of conservatives that they found on the internet had bad things to say about this ad, but I don't think it's fair to say that the cons- that the conservative community in America writ large is just in a fiery outrage over an ad intended to proselytize Christianity. I don't think so, Newsweek. Chris, that brings us to our style section. do it. I really enjoyed this Wall Street Journal piece. Yeah, I'm eager to to hear your, because I'm going to let you go first on this one for sure. Really enjoyed this. The Journal had a big write-up. Headline, men used to have wives. Now they have stylists. It's a cliche, but a factual one, that in many relationships, the wife or better-dressed husband is the begrudging fashion consultant. Supreet Chahal, a personal stylist in Oakland specializing in tech guys, says many clients come in saying, my girlfriend tried to help me, my wife tried tried out on me, but she keeps dressing me the way she wants me to look. And the piece is all about men who are hiring consultants stylists at ten thousand dollars a pop to dress them and all the men talk about how much better they feel today strivers in tech law and finance are wealthier than ever but corporate dress codes have collapsed so men are very confused right now with the dress codes that have blurred the lines of formality said jackie J, a a white collar stylist in new york city for two decades whose services start at thirty eight hundred dollars plus expenses nah. Expenses. Jay, who works solely with executives, said that many of her roughly 50 clients knew what they liked in terms of style but had no idea how to achieve that look. I looked sloppy and I didn't want to look sloppy, said Raj Nanganuri, 36, a neurosurgeon in Austin. He spent, he spent working hours in scrubs, but out of them, he was adrift. Even shorts. <laughs> like I was never great at picking out shorts, Nanganuri said. Around a year ago, he Googled in search of a stylist and hired Peter Nguyen, a former menswear designer turned $10,000 stylist. Nguyen's entrepreneur and tech-type clients are long on money, short on time, and scant on clothing knowledge. And this guy, there's a picture of him in a vineyard. He looks great. He looks great. I'm all all for it. That looks great? Yeah, he looks great. That looks great? Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you. Here's how I know that this is bogus. Because I can't tell the difference between the before pictures and the after pictures. So you have this picture of a guy wearing a checked shirt untucked out of jeans. That's yeah, the, that, that was that's the before that picture. Was... The after picture, meh, jeans, whatever. But now he's got a sport coat on and he's wearing glasses. There's another picture of a guy in a checked shirt tucked into chinos. Now he's got a blazer on. Whoa! 
He's wearing an unconstructed blazer and in a telling move of how bad the fashion consulting is, one of the key moves was to put him in children's tennis shoes to have him wear athletic shoes instead of adult shoes. And my favorite, though, is there's a guy who looks perfectly good wearing a black T-shirt and jeans, riding his little bicycle with his little children's backpack in the basket in front of it, who looks like he's having a perfectly good day. And now he, he's he got another deconstructed sport coat on standing next to it, and he doesn't look any better. None of these guys look any better. Okay, I thought, well, we didn't see it before of the neurosurgeon, but he looks great. And I thought the guy in the gray blazer looked great. Let me just say, let me just, let me tell you people, here's, here's what you have to know. And this guy looks great on the, after the one who's on the bike before. He, looked he looks fine before. He looks, he looks, looks fine in, in either, in either place. But let me tell you people, here's what you need to know. Young men, if there are any young men out there listening, do not do fads. Do not do trends. Do not embrace style. Style is a bad, bad thing to try to embrace because you're going to end up doing fashion and you're going to end up dressing like a ridiculous person. What you should do is, young men, listen to me, hear me, invest in some staple goods. That's what the, that's what the stylists do for the them. The staple good is children's Nate tennis laughing shoes. laughing and pointing at me. The staple goods are, are children's athletic shoes that you're supposed to wear to work with acid wash black jeans. <laughs> the, those Guys, are... okay, can our readers please click through to this journal article and tell us if these gentlemen don't look better. So start out with two blazers that you like. Three, no, you'll probably like ugly blazers. Three. Get a blue blazer, get a good blue blazer, get a tweed blazer, and get a lighter weight summer blazer. Get plenty. Those, that, get, that's way too broad there, get, Chris. Get, get gray dress pants and get tan dress pants. Get some of those, a couple few pairs of those. And then what do you need? You need a blue suit. You need a gray pinstripe suit. Oh, no. Yes. No pinstripe. You need a gray, a gray, I like a pinstripe suit, but you need a blue suit. You need a gray suit, and you can make that go. You can use that, and you need good shirts, and you need adult shoes. You need a pair of dress black shoes, and you need a pair of brown shoes that shine and have hard soles. Invest in these things. I can wear the same clothing that my father, not the same exact items of clothing, but the same idea as my father and grandfather wore. High widths change a little bit. There's a few changes here and there. But invest in staple clothing. Do not pay somebody $5,000 to tell you to wear a deconstructed blazer with acid wash black jeans and tennis shoes. Don't do it. Don't do it. Chris, where are you on tooth, tooth fairy, fairy inflation? inflation? Also, the journal was really knocking it out of the park. Love this. The journal writes that tooth fairy inflation is real. It's leaving $100 bills and Louis Vuitton bracelets. Whoa. Parents were already going big for birthday parties and college acceptances, but now they are increasingly making a splash for smaller milestones, too. Pinterest, the online platform for sharing ideas, calls the phenomenon inch stones and has declared it a top predicted trend for 2024. Come on. That's why it's the style section. Inch stones. Jenny Pierce of Beaufort, South Carolina, was stunned recently to see a video posted by a mom with more than 600,000 TikTok followers of her daughter getting $100 in Canadian dollars. That's that, 20 bucks? $74 oh, okay. in U.S. dollars from the tooth fairy for lo losing her first tooth. 
damn, you're killing me and the tooth fairy, Pierce wrote in the comments section. Speaking by phone later, Pierce, who's 42 and a waitress, said her own six-year-old son had just lost his first tooth and she gave him $2. Seems That's what like I think it. the tooth fairy should leave. It's not a big celebration, Pierce said. But every holiday is like that now. Some local parents, she noted, bring in gift bags for every kid in her son's class for Valentine's Day, Easter, Halloween, or their child's birthday. You feel like you have to compete. You have to do one or your kid is left out. And the article featured this adorable little girl whose mom gave her a $100 bill with like decorated with rhinestones and glitter and all this stuff meant to be framed. That's trashy. That for, is, that is, that's powerfully uh, trashy. For losing her tooth. So cute article. I had no idea this was happening. What do you, what do you think the tooth, tooth fairy ought to give? I have five bucks. I think five is a nice, I think five is a, is a good number. But I was the kid, by the way, who knew the tooth fairy was complete BS. And I remember trying to stay up to catch my mom coming in my room, leaving the money under my pillow. A nice alternative, and I recommend highly, is to get a silver dollar. Oh, that's cute. And do that. That's a, It's nice, and you don't have to worry about the crinkly bill. That brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Now, mine was... A Piece in the Wrap by Emily Smith. The headline is, CNN looks to slash budgets, comma, star salaries as Mark Thompson digs in. Now, the great part about this piece is that it details the salaries of several CNN talent, and your heads will fly off your bodies when you hear some of these numbers. So I thought slashing these salaries will not be very difficult. The first thing they need to do is dramatically reduce costs, Rich Greenfield, a partner and media and tech analyst at Lightshed Partners, told The Wrap. If you work at CNN, your compensation is going to go down dramatically over the next five years. There's just no other way around it. So let's get to the good stuff in here. The article notes that top CNN earners include primetime anchor Anderson Cooper, who makes an estimated $20 million a year, Wolf Blitzer, who earns about $15 million, Jake Tapper, who pulls in more than $8.5 million, and Chris Wallace, who makes about $8 million, two insiders said. Other co-anchors, including John Berman, Kate Baldwin, and Sarah Sidner, make in the $1 million to $2 million range, a third executive with knowledge of salaries, told The Wrap. Thompson has indicated in a staff memo he is looking to trim production costs, quote, that now look difficult to support, end quote, which media experts and former staffers say is likely to mean cuts to at least some of those big salaries. Woo! It's a lot of money. Woo! That is a great deal of money. And wow. I guess just wow. Whew. Okay. Last week, Thompson announced he was removing hosts Poppy Harlow and Phil Mattingly from this morning. He also reshuffled CNN News Central from 7 a.m. until 10 a.m. with co-anchors Berman, Baldwin, and Sidner. Thompson said CNN would no longer produce morning programming from New York. All morning shows would be produced out of Atlanta, creating huge savings. Okay, so CNN, they are on the way down. But pretty easy cost-cutting exercise, if you ask me. It's just a lot of money. Chris, what is your obsession? Okay, so the... Results of a New York special election to replace George Santos returned the Democrat who had previously represented that dis- district, Tom Swazi, 
Swazi, Swazi. So Swazi, who gave up the seat for his second failed bid for governor of New York, had to come back and run in the district that has been redrawn since he held it. And it was that redrawing by a special master appointed by an appellate court in New York that made it possible for George Santos, who was running to lose, right? So George Santos, the worst thing that ever happened to George Santos was that he won. He, he, when he ran against Swazi in 2020, it was fine. And he did it again. And he was going to do it again in 2022. And then the map shifted and it became a winnable seat for him. And tragically for George Santos and America, he won. So this district is a D plus eight. Is that right, Nate Moore? Yeah, Biden won it. Okay, so Biden won it by eight, but it's probably more like a D plus five, let's say. Biden probably performed better there, blah, 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 blah. So it's a modestly Democratic district. Democrats, for all of the reasons that we talked about with the Her report and other things, are in the, in the dumps, right? They're in the dumps. And Swazi won by a lot, 15 points or something. No, he won by eight too. He only won by yeah, eight. Okay, he's, so he's he track by so so he, he so he only he only did as well as he should have done. He did not do any better than he should have done. But Democrats are happy about this because, in the near term, it means that life for the embattled Speaker of the House of Representatives and Republicans will be even worse because their majority is now one seat smaller, meaning that their ability as they head into a brutal season of negotiations around keeping the government open and foreign funding and all kinds of stuff. It's going to be very tough. Now, here's the question. Well, I think, and it shows that Biden's poor favorability ratings are not proving a drag on Democrats well, this, elsewhere. This is, this is the, the, so there's two questions. True. It is true. There are two questions. The, the first question is, can Democrats continue to overperform? Democrats have overperformed in every election since Donald Trump won in 2016, in 2018, in 2020, and in 2022. Democrats punched way above their weight because they were turning out better than Republicans were. And the, the core argument that we alluded to around her, and I did a podcast this week for the absent Jonah Goldberg with my colleague, Nate, my colleague, Rui Teixeira, about Democrats don't are they're not willing to look at problems in their coalition because they keep getting away with it. Right. Trump is such a turnout machine for Democrats, Roe v. Wade, that instead of trying to go for the middle and trying to reach out to more persuadable voters, that they're able to keep doing it on intensity instead of persuasion. But the other. So the interesting part here is. Why did Swazi win? And there is an emerging media narrative, as evidenced by this AP story, but you can see it a lot of places, which is, hey, immigration can be a winner for Democrats. There, there was an old argument that said immigration can be a winner for Democrats, but that argument said that in order to suck up to Hispanic voters, they needed to be soft on immigration, that it was essential to be permissive in immigration policy. But because of two things, the successful jujitsu on the border that Democrats led by Chuck Schumer in the Senate were able to do to House Republicans to get to get Republicans to basically vote against border security and Swazi's victory. We see this thread emerge about, hey, maybe it's time and 
maybe it's time to get serious and send a message that we really care about this. And in New York, it's particularly pungent because of what's going on with the migrant crisis in New York, the assault on police officers, and general anxiety uh, among New Yorkers about what's going on. And the, the question here for me is, and this is what I will be watching closely, if Democrats are anxious enough about Joe Biden's health, they may, contra Teixeira or contra Teixeira's observations about what Democrats have been doing in the Trump era, is there, is there actually a door opening here where Democrats can embrace restrictions and a harder line on migration than they did before? Necessity necessity says they should. Will they do that? I don't know. Chris, it is now time for my favorite segment of the week, which is reader mail. Yes, do it. Our first note is from Jennifer and David Glade in Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, oh, two of my favorite people in the world. And they write, we love your show and listen over lunch on Fridays. Super Bowl picnic dips aren't just for toddlers, teenagers too. Our teenager makes great wings and there's a wonderful picture included. I meant to make seven layer dip, but I'm not a teenager with time on my hands. Oh, well. Well, Jennifer Glade is one of the busiest people that I know. She, she and David, David is the, my pastor and she is his, she is his lovely wife. And this picture of chicken wings is legit. Now I'm having not in in common cause with the Harvard students, I am having to skip lunch today, and the chicken wings are making me extraordinarily hungry. And I'm going to recommend that Christ the King Anglican Church begin a chicken wing facing ministry immediately. Give up, give up the oyster roasts, David Glade, and let's have chicken wing celebrations. That's 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 where to go. Our next note is from Julie in Toronto, who says, Hi, Eliana and Chris. I've been listening to the podcast since last summer. I never miss a new episode, and I'm trying to catch up on the archives. My question is how, why, when you guys decided to do the podcast. You both have lots of colleagues in media, so I'm curious to know what brought you two together. Thanks. I met you. We had lunch at Bistro B. We did. We had lunch at Bistro B. You were the... National Review, Washington Bureau, human. And so that would have been 2015, probably? Around then. Thereabouts. And we had lunch. We sat upstairs at Bistro B. Yes. And, and you were the Fox News. Political editor. And Cuba. And we've been friends ever since. And we often see each other on the campaign trail. Yes. And many friends in common. And I have a lot of respect and admiration uh, for Eliana's tenacity, for her good work ethic, for her good questioning, and for her ability to look at things clearly and uh, have, have long been an admirer. And when I was unhoused from the Fox News channel, when I was defenestrated, and I had a podcast there, which I love doing with Dana Perino, and was podcastless, Eliana Johnson said, let's do it. Let's do a podcast. And we did. And it's been great fun. And I said, don't make a move without talking to me. That's right. And I didn't. And so we did. And it's been fun. And then Colin came along and here we are. Nate and then came we, along. Then we were baking pets and doing all sorts of things. It was great. 
Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. When I am forced to say something nice, but as always, please lead by example. Okay. This is Homerism a thousandfold. This is a, a, a commentary magazine piece from our friend John Podoritz, from John Podoritz's magazine. And it is by, to fully disclose all of my biases here, it is in a, a magazine edited by a friend and written by a friend and colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Adam White. The Power Broke Her, The Rise and Maybe Fall of Lena Khan, who is the chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission. And here is what I love about this piece and why I hold it up as an example. It is a big sucker. It is a long, long piece, deeply researched, deeply thought out. And what Adam does in this piece, Adam, a, a sterling mind, a, uh, a constitutional legal expert, good at this stuff. This is no Jeremiah. This is no unhinged attack. This is not a thirsty, hot take. This is a thoughtful, well-constructed. So kudos to Adam for writing it, but kudos to commentary. And I think, you know, to, to plump for commentary for a second further, one of the things that commentary does, and I've, I've enjoyed writing for commentary in the past, one of the things commentary does is let writers go where they're going and give them space and give them time to do it. What's going on at the FTC is bananas. Whether you agree or disagree with the ambitions of Lena Khan, the way that it's being run, how things are going is just bananas. And Adam White really usefully makes this argument. And I, I who know next to nothing about constitutional law, regulatory codes or whatever else, came away from this with an understanding about a big, a big movement under the surface in Washington, D.C., with implications for this administration and every administration after this. Well done. My favorite item is a little bit old. It really should have been my last week's favorite item. Oh, um, this was so good. Was this wonderful Wall Street Journal piece about the, I think it's Newman family. Yes. N-E-U-M-A-N-N. And the headline is, the $1 billion art collection that's tearing a family apart. Herbert Newman spent his life building a storied art collection to bequeath his three daughters. Then his wife's will changed everything. And it is a phenomenal investigative report about a very wealthy family whose relationships have been torn apart by this art collection and their battle to keep it together. Sibling relationships ruined, relationships between father and daughter ruined. I highly, highly recommend it. A really good. And again, another example of letting writers run with a story and go where it takes them. Trust your writers. If Don't hire dummies. Hire smart people and then let them run. And this is a great, great piece. Good, it's wonderful. A good find. That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, Email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.